Welcome to Ascension Development, the podcast. Alright, welcome once again to Sentient Developments, the podcast. My name is George Dvorsky, and you're listening to the podcast of my blog, Sentient Developments, where I cover such topics as futurism, transhumanism, and science, but also things like health and wellness, issues as they pertain to better eating and exercise and anything that may do that may help you with your longevity and life extension practices. Today's episode, I've got a lot to talk about. There's no particular theme. Um, just want to go over a number of articles that caught my attention this week. There were a lot of interesting things happening in and around uh, the blogs and the news, news sites that I frequent. going to start talk by talking about uh, my recent paper on Dysonian SETI that was published in the Journal of the British Interplanetary Society. Also going to discuss a recent paper that was published that says that the galaxy should have been colonized by now, which is something that I've been uh, railing on about for years and what many observers have been railing upon for years, what is known as the Fermi Paradox. Also going to discuss uh, how there's, there's starting to be a movement to ban prenatal gender information and the whole practice of gender selection. That's particularly a topic here in Canada for reasons that I'll get into. Going to update you on the research that's being done on that mutant strain of bird flu virus and some opinions that I have on the matter. Also going to talk about an article by Thomas White on how whales are people too. Then get into some life extension and health issues want to discuss how um, what you can do to stave off cognitive decline later in life and not necessarily through let's say any kind of pharmaceutical or any other kind of medical intervention but by keeping your brain stimulated particularly through education and going to once again uh, discuss the benefits of fish oil I know I went over this last week but I uh, found another article this week that reaffirms what I've been saying and to conclude the episode going to discuss pleasures, perils, and why a so-called sex chip may not be such a good idea. Okay, in terms of news, as we get started here, finally, after, after about three years of work, and including the tragic loss of one of our collaborators, our paper has finally hit the newsstands. And the latest edition of the Journal of the British Interplanetary Society, it features the article, Dysonian Approach to SETI, a Fruitful Middle Ground, and my fellow collaborators being Milan Sirkovich and the late Robert Bradbury, who died suddenly last year of a massive stroke. Now, regrettably, the paper is behind a paywall, but if you message me, I will send you a PDF of it. You can email me at george at sentientdevelopments.com. Now, let me read to you the abstract, though, as a bit of a teaser. In the abstract, we say that we critically assess the prevailing currents in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, embodied in the notion of radio searches for intentional artificial signals as envisioned by pioneers such as Frank Drake, Philip Morrison, Michael Papagianis, and others. In particular, we emphasize, one, the necessity of integrating SETI into a wider astrobiological and future studies context. Two, the relevance of and lessons to be learned from the anti-SETI arguments, in particular Fermi's paradox. And three, a need for complementary approach, which we dub the Dysonian SETI. It is meaningfully derived from the inventive and visionary ideas of Freeman J. Dyson and his imaginative precursors like Konstantin E. Sokolovsky, Olaf Stapleton, Nikola Tesla, or G even J.B.S. Haldane, who suggested macro-engineering projects 
as the focal points in the context of extrapolations about the future of humanity, and by analogy, other intelligent species. We consider practical ramifications of the Dysonian SETI and indicate some of the promising directions for future work. Again, that was the abstract, and basically we're suggesting that current SETI techniques are ineffective and dated, and that a new future-oriented approach needs to be undertaken. More specifically, the folks at SETI, they need to be looking for those artifacts and signals indicative of a post-singularity or highly advanced extraterrestrial civilization. So, in other words, stop listening to radio signals, which um, arguably will we as a civilization, will we've already pretty much stopped emitting ourselves, which would indicate that the window for emitting radio signals of any kind of a civilization is excruciatingly short. Obviously, in the, maybe let's call it, let's be generous and call it 100 years. So, for example, instead, what should we be looking for? Well, we need to be looking for those signatures that may be emitted from, like I said, advanced civilizations. So things like those signatures that would be emitted from a Dyson sphere or another, or another megascale artifact. And just very quickly, a Dyson sphere is a massive megascale object that uh, Freeman Dyson has predicted an advanced civilization may build. And what it is, is its structure that's at the, the distance of 1 AU from uh, the sun, which is basically the distance of the home planet from the sun. And you build a massive, you literally build a massive shell around the sun so that you can, can, can capture nearly 100% of the sun's energy output. And uh, with that energy, you could pretty much run any kind of advanced civilization uh, and run all the comp and conduct all the computational requirements and other requirements that uh, that civilization could need. And uh, that such a such a structure would have a very particular signature that we could look for. So that's one thing we need to be looking at. And uh, other kinds of macro engineering feats we could look for things like super mundane planets, shell worlds, Jacob ladders, and similar circumplanetary constructions. So things that are very much related to Dyson spheres. Also, kind of like the uh, the industrial element and. Uh, uh, the, the productive element of civilization, so looking for large-scale antimatter-burning vehicles or even in, like uh, interstellar uh, industrial plants. Uh, we should be looking for large-scale processing of radionucleotides and artificial planetary rings. Also, we should be looking for large artificial objects like Sokolovsky-O'Neill habitats, for instance, in transiting orbits and detectable through extrasolar planet searches. Also looking for um, artificial objects that may serve as calling cards, so deliberate objects placed in the orbit around, let's say, a sun that would catch our attention that we know could not be natural and would uh, grab our attention and basically be a way of saying, hey, look, there's an intelligence residing in this particular solar system. And smaller objects being anonymously, anonymously accelerated via systems such as mass drivers or space elevators. So there's lots of things that we can look for. Um, obviously easier said than done as some of these things may be very uh, tiny relative to uh, what we are able to discover through our telescopic technologies right now. But um, we have to start somewhere and start looking for these things. And uh, what I would say is that SETI, yes, it's been largely a failure to date, and not necessarily because they haven't had enough time to look. Uh, it's, it's more than likely that SETI has just simply been looking at, for the wrong things in the wrong places. Now, as a friend of mine uh, commented, he said that, well, perhaps uh, we don't even know what we're looking for. And granted, that, that certainly may be the case, that uh, once we let's say a few decades from now, we look back even at this Dysonian approach to SETI, we may think that I was rather naive at the kinds of things we thought we should be looking for, but that's all good. Uh, at this point, we have to do the best that we can and continue to push this forward. I, I fully suspect that in about 20 or 40 years, we, we will realize that there probably are other signatures that we should be looking for, and that's all fine. We'll, we'll get there eventually. But for now, this is the best that uh, we, can, we can figure and extrapolate based on current trends and let the search begin. So again, that is the Dysonian SETI paper. And like I said, if you would like a copy, just let me know. Now, on that particular topic, and one that actually may contradict somewhat our Dysonian paper, is a new mathematical study that reveals that our galaxy should have been colonized by now. So just to pause for a second... Um, why I feel that this may be contradictory to our paper, or may undermine it, is that 
this study shows either one of two different things, or perhaps more, depending on how deep you want to delve into this. One, that we are alone in the Milky Way galaxy, which is a rather frightening and bizarre conclusion. And secondly, that interstellar, and this is something that I've argued before, is that interstellar colonization is simply not in the cards for an advanced sieve, for whatever reason. It, kind of scratching our heads as to why uh, it's never happened. Given, let's just assume for a second that the uh, so the uh, that the galaxy is in fact littered with extraterrestrial uh, civilizations. Um, the question is why, for what reason? Why hasn't even one of them, for example, gone about interstellar colonization or even done it through proxy through probes? It's a very strange observation, Fermi paradox. So, anyways, back to this uh, mathematical study. And I caught this in a recent edition of The Economist, and it's a paper by Thomas Hare and Andrew Hedman. And uh, what's interesting about this paper is that they're not cosmologists or astrobiologists, but rather they're mathematicians. And they went about this through the, through the, uh, the, the lens of number crunching, and they're looking for an answer to the question of how long would it take a civilization to colonize its local region, given a set of parameters. And their findings are quite disturbing, and that no matter how they reworked the numbers, they keep they kept coming to the same conclusion that the galaxy it should be colonized by now. And I'm gonna now quote from the article from the Economist that does a does a very good job of describing what it was exactly that they did. So quote To arrive at their conclusion, Dr. Hare and Mr. Hedman assumed that outer space is dotted with solar systems about five light years apart. They then asked how quickly a single civilization armed with the requisite technology would spread its tentacles, depending on the degree of colonizing zeal, expressed as the probability that intelligent beings decide to hop from one planet to the next in 1,000 years, so 500 years for the trip at modest one-tenth of the speed of light, and another 500 years to prepare for the next hop. Fair enough. Sounds reasonable to me. I'm going to continue now with the quote. All these numbers are necessarily moot. If the vast majority of planets is not suitable, for instance, the average distance for a successful expedition might be much more than five light years. And advanced beings might not need five Earth centuries to get up to speed before they redeploy. However, Dr. Hare and Mr. Hedman can tweak their probabilities to reflect a range of possible conditions. Using what they believe to be conservative assumptions, as low as one chance in four of embarking on a colonizing mission in 1,000 years, they calculated that any galactic empire would have spread outwards from its home planet at about 0.25% of the speed of light. The result is that after 50 million years, it would extend over 130,000 light years with zealous colonizers moving in a relatively uniform cloud and more reticent ones protruding from a central blob. Since the Milky Way is estimated to be 100,000 to 120,000 light years across, outposts would be sprinkled throughout the galaxy, even if the home planet were, like Earth, located on the periphery. Crucially, even in a slow expansion scenario, the protrusions eventually coalesce. After 250,000 years, which the model has so far had the time to simulate, the biggest gaps are no larger than 30 light years across. Dr. Hare thinks they should grow no bigger as his virtual colonization progresses. That is easily small enough for man's first sufficiently powerful radio emissions in the early 20th century, to have been detected and for a reply to have reached Earth, which has been actively listening out for such messages since the 1960s. And though 50 million years may sound a lot, if intelligence did evolve more than once, it could have easily done so billions of years before this happened on Earth. All this suggests, Dr. Hare and Mr. Hedman fear, that humans really do have the Milky Way to themselves. Either that or the neighbors are a particularly timid bunch. End quote. So, how is that for fascinating? And I love this because it's just a further, uh, you know, evidence, if you will, or even just a, however you want to call it, mathematical kind of evidence that uh, was the same kind of back-of-the-napkin calculation, or rather, um, Enrico Fermi, when he first came up with the Fermi paradox of some 60, what is it, but some 50, 60 years ago now, 
Apparently, he did this kind of quick back-of-the-envelope calculation uh, just in his head. The, the guy was quite brilliant, actually. But now we actually have, um, I think, more of a systematic approach here. Uh, I'm sure that the, the, the work that these guys did was very exhaustive, and I'd love to take a look at the paper. And in fact, I have sent out a request to them. I'd love to get a copy of it, as I could not find a version of it online. So again, okay, uh, trying to maybe take a step back. What does all of this mean, really? Well, it means that the next time somebody shrugs, next time you're in conversation with somebody and you talk to them about this and they smugly shrug off the Fermi paradox and suggest things like it takes too long to colonize the galaxy or that there hasn't been enough time to colonize the galaxy or that the galaxy is too big, you need to tell them to zip up and read this paper and read also some of the other literature that uh, surrounds this particularly interesting subject that of the Fermi paradox and the great science, the great silence. So again, just uh, what 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 this study really reveals is that the galaxy is so old, it's so ancient, and life could have emerged so long ago, intelligent life could have emerged so long ago, and because the the galaxy, relatively relativistically speaking, is small at about 100 to 120 light years across, given how ancient the galaxy is, uh, it should most certainly have been populated by now even when you plug in some incredibly conservative estimates about speed and the rate at which a civilization wishes wishes to colonize. So we're back to the drawing board here, and we have to ask ourselves again, um, is rare earth a valid hypothesis? That's maybe, uh, may very well may be the case. Uh, is the great filter hypothesis a valid uh, solution to this? The great filter being, of course, the idea that civilizations uh, destroy themselves before they develop the capacity to become interstellar. Or thirdly, more optimistically speaking, might there be uh, a third option that uh, still has advanced civilization progressing and thriving and uh, meeting all the objectives and um, you know advances that we would hope a civilization can achieve just simply through non-colonization. So basically staying in their local system creating massive supercomputers and basically having everything that they could possibly need locally, not needing to colonize. Again, the trouble with that particular scenario, though, is why is it that every single civilization that has ever emerged in the galaxy chosen that exact same path? And why hasn't even one of them chosen to send out a colonization wave or set of probes? Because maybe that uh, violates, uh, violates the... Um, the principle of simplicity in science and uh, regrettably either it's rare earth which may, which may, not, may not be a, a bad thing earth, rare earth is not a, not a bad ending but the great filter certainly is so again you can check that out in The Economist or you can read up my write up on it on sentient developments alright we're going to take a break and change the subject pretty dramatically and when we return from this musical interlude, going to discuss how Canadians are considering banning prenatal gender information. Oh, 
So here's a piece of pending bio-legislation that, in my opinion, is quite a non-starter. Uh, Rahendra Kale, who is an interim editor of the Canadian Medical Association Journal, he's called for a ban on disclosing the sex of a fetus until 30 weeks. And why 30 weeks? Because that is the point after which it's difficult to obtain an abortion. And the idea here is to prevent Canadian parents from engaging in gender selection. The fear is that boys will be favored over girls, causing a gender imbalance. And in fact, this is happening. Now, what I will say, that aside from this being a gross violation of reproductive rights, this also flies in the face of actual experience for the larger set of Canadians. While there's no question that some ethnicities practice sex selection in Canada, namely Canadians of Sikh, Hindu, and Chinese descent, far more Canadians would use the procedure for family-balancing purposes. Moreover, if anything, the latest word is that Canadian couples are favoring girls over boys. Okay, now, this is obviously a complicated issue, a very sensitive issue, one that trudges on, like I said, reproductive freedoms, our reproductive liberties and our autonomy, state intervention on our reproductive choices, and so on. But it also is one that brings to mind some other questions about social responsibility, and at what point does the state have to move in and uh, and correct these so-called uh, um, practices that are happening in the general population. So here's what's happening in Canada. Basically, um, Canadians who are, as I mentioned, of like Sikh, Hindu, and Chinese descent, so Chinese and Indians primarily, they are undeniably practicing gender selection in in Canada. In fact, arguably even more so here because they here they have access to the technologies which they wouldn't necessarily have back at home. And in India, it's actually illegal now to do this, only because the gender balances there are getting so out of whack. Now, my on on the flip side of things, um, Canadians that are of not are not of that ethnicity, they. The art, the issue I have with, let's say, banning gender selection outright is that it's kind of like ruining it for everybody because there are a number of Canadians who are actually using it responsibly. So I would say that more Canadians would use gender selection for family balancing purposes, which is the idea of having a boy and a girl. But I've heard anecdotally, even, uh, for example, Canadian couples who go to Mexico or even elsewhere uh, to the United States to have the procedure done because it actually is illegal Um it is illegal in Canada to um, to actually do this. The, the, what the parents would never actually e- admit to having an abortion because they are um, uh, terminating uh, the, the fetus on, on consideration of its gender. Is that um, girls actually are being favored more than boys? So how's that for kind of an interesting flip side on things? Now uh, I have a clip here, just again maybe do a bit of counterpoint. A clip from. Uh, a doctor who is in favor of the um, the ban here in Canada, and uh, have a listen to what he has to say, and uh, see if uh, you agree with his opinions. For expecting parents finding out if they're having a boy or a girl is one of the biggest moments of the pregnancy. Parents can learn the sex of their child in the second trimester, but a leading Canadian doctor wants to ban disclosing the sex of a baby until 30 weeks. The reason is the intentional abortions of female fetuses, which is widely practiced in many countries, including China and India. Dr. Rajendra Kalei is the author of the impassioned editorial in the Canadian Medical Association Journal. This morning, he's with us live from Ottawa. Good morning, doctor. Hi there. Good morning. Uh, So tell us why you think that this is necessary, 30 weeks instead of the 18 or 20 Female feticide is definitely occurring in Canada and it needs to be tackled. The starting point of female feticide is usually in the uh, ultrasonography room when the sex of the fetus is made known to the parents, uh, made known to the woman. And uh, then it leads to abortions if the fetus is a female in certain ethnic communities in some people. How widespread do you think it is in this country? Because we've heard cases uh, in China and in India, uh, although uh, prenatal testing uh, has been banned in India altogether and people can face criminal charges. Some doctors were just charged last week. But how widespread do you think it is in this country? It is widespread among uh, certain in certain pockets of the country where you have uh, uh, people from the South Asian continent and from China. 
so there are these pockets. Uh, I would not be surprised if there were certain areas of, say, for example, Toronto, uh, uh, the male-female uh, sex ratios were perhaps even worse than those in India because all these people have access to ultrasonography. Some would say they'd look at this and look at your argument and say it's withholding information. What would be your response to that? I'd like to say two things. Number one, we are withholding information uh, only for uh, another 10 weeks. So uh, the information will be available at 30 weeks according to the proposal I've made. And that will allow enough time for parents who wish to uh, uh, prepare the nursery or buy the right clothes uh, that information is not completely denied to them. And the second thing that I'd like to say is that this information is medically irrelevant information. The sex of the child does not determine medical treatment or medical management of the pregnancy, except in the very rare instance where there are some genetic sex link disorders. So this is not medically relevant information. It changes nothing. And uh, moreover, that information is available after some time, just there's a delay. My my take on all this is is ac access to these technologies and the rights of individuals to choose the gender of their offspring. And I think family balancing is an important thing. Uh, the idea, for example, of keep having a kid until um, you get the right gender seems a bit excessive. And I know that my grandparents, for example, they uh, they wanted a boy, and they uh, they had four girls before they had the fifth boy. And uh, that seemed to be, like I said, rather excessive. And um, as most couples these days anyways would just like to have a couple of kids and a boy and a girl, makes sense. Make make this available to them. And uh, a great, great quote from a recent Globe and Mail article on this. Uh, it noted, um, there's a quote here from Tim Caulfield, who's the Canadian Research Chair in Health Law and Policy at the University of Alberta. He says, you may disagree or feel uncomfortable with the practice, but people who practice family balancing they are not evil or nefarious. Here, here, that's very well put. And uh, he's, he's basically stressing that he's not endorsing it or, uh, or anything, but just underscoring the fact that it's a complex issue with many nuances. Now, let's go outside of Canada for just a second here. And again, as noted, this is obviously the gender imbalancing is happening in the larger city centers, particularly in Toronto, where you have large Indian and Chinese communities. And where they, where couples clearly have access to prenatal testing and abortion. But I would say that, uh, across the country of, of Canada as a whole, gender imbalances is not a problem. And again, you can even get into the entire issue as to, um, is our gender imbalances, uh, actually a problem? And, uh, that's something that I could maybe devote in another, another episode to. But what I, just very quickly, what I mean by that is, uh, there's all this kind of hysteria now saying that it's really bad that there is a gender imbalance, but we have to ask ourselves, okay, uh, from a consequentialist perspective, what would be so bad about it? And uh, what are the what are the kinds of ills, the social ills, societal ills that would come about? Obviously, first and foremost, you're going to have a whole lot of guys that are unable, unable to find uh, wives. And you, similarly, you could also have a, you'll have a country where there's far more, uh, and by, by consequence of that, far more men, and uh, what are you know what are the potential negatives of that? Uh, also, one can take another look at it and say this is a this is also interesting to look at through the frame of the heterosexual lens that this is clearly uh, a heterosexual bias to say that gender imbalances are bad. Uh, and I'm I'm just again not making any opinions here uh, one way or the other. I'm just throwing a whole bunch of variables here at you so that you realize this is a very complex issue and it's not as simple as saying oh a gender imbalance is bad. There needs to be you know sociological analyses done here. And uh, also different kinds of method methodological approaches and frameworks apply to kind of understand, is this a problem and does it need to be fixed and regulated? But in terms of the actual numbers, uh, the distortion of the human sex ratio is certainly happening in India and in China. And in fact, uh, the data is starting to show this. And uh, it's now becoming very uh, male biased, of course. And in the natural state, the the uh, it's very rare to see um, a, an imbalance, uh, anything worse than 105 male births, 200 female ones, except when you have very small samples. Now, in China's last mini-census back in 2005, the ratio was nearly 120 male births to every 100 female births. And in some districts, get this, it was over 150. And, of course, this is caused by sex-selective abortion. And... Uh, 
China. It's not the only country where this is happening. By the early 21st century, all four Asian quote-unquote tigers, which include South Korea, Singapore, Hong Kong, and Taiwan, had a what's considered a naturally impossible ratio of 108 or higher. India, it's got an increasing ratio, again, as high, like in China, as high as 120 in some states. And uh, by these, uh, the study also shows that some European and Central Asian countries, including Albania, Georgia, and even Italy, have unnaturally male-biased births, and nearly half of the world falls in this category. So for 2005 to 2010, the United Nations puts the world sex ratio at birth at 107 boys to 100 girls. So that's worldwide, 107 boys to 100 girls. And assuming that 105 is natural, Dr. Eberstadt, who's the author of this particular study, this uh, he's a demographer, his name is Nicholas Eberstadt, he concludes that there is a global girl deficit of at least 32 million. So in terms of the consequences, again, uh, that's a lot of unmarried and perhaps even disruptive men. And uh, that could be that could lead to some very serious and long-lasting social problems. So, be careful, people, when it comes time to uh, use technologies for these sorts of purposes. It's the so-called tragedy of the commons, when individual choices that seem to be right or correct or appropriate, that in in collectivity as a whole, can result in the diminishment of uh, benefits for the larger community. Very tricky area. All right, let's take another break. And when we return, we'll discuss why whales are people too. No, not yet. That's just a teaser. We're not going to talk about that yet. We're going to talk about the latest on the research on the mutant strain of the bird flu and how it has come to a stop. And then we'll talk about how whales are moving. for you on the news about a mutant strain of bird flu that was developed by a Dutch lab. And again, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. For those of you who missed it, just a very quick recap, and that is a, uh, a Dutch lab took the, uh, the avian flu, mutated it, apparently very easy to do by their account, just a couple of mutations, and they made it much more highly transmissible. They made it, air, they converted it into an airborne virus. And uh, they did it, they say, for a couple of reasons. One, because they wanted to uh, see how easily it could be done. And secondly, so that uh, we can now preemptively work to mitigate the effects of such a virus should somebody else do the same thing for nefarious purposes. And now, the scientists uh, who did this work, uh, they have temporarily stopped their research amid fears that it could be used by bioterrorists. And uh, I'm going to quote now from a BBC article that uh, covered this this week. So, quote, in a letter published in Science and Nature, the teams call for an international forum to debate the risks and value of the studies. U.S. authorities last month asked the authors of the research to redact key details in forthcoming publications. A government advisory panel suggested the data could be used by terrorists. 
Biosecurity experts fear a mutant form of the virus could spark a pandemic deadlier than the 1918-19 Spanish flu outbreak that killed up to 40 million people. The National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity recommended key details be omitted from publication of the research, which sparked international furor. Quote, I would have preferred if this hadn't caused so much controversy, but it has happened and we can't change that. Ron Fouchier, a researcher from Erasmus Medical Center in Rotterdam, told Science Insider. Quote, so I think it's the right step to make. End quote. While bird flu is deadly, its reach has been limited because it is not transmissible between humans. However, the H5N1 flu virus was altered to be passed easily between ferrets during the joint research by Erasmus University in the Netherlands and the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the U.S. A senior U.S. health official says not everyone needs to know how to make a lethal virus. Two scientific journals want to publish the research, albeit in redacted form, and are trying to work out with the U.S. government how to make the data accessible to, quote, responsible scientists. The World Health Organization said in a December statement that limiting access to the research would harm an agreement between its members. The NSABB is made up of scientists and public health experts, 23 from outside the government and 18 from within. End quote. And again, that was from the BBC last week. Now, um, I want to uh, gonna play a clip now from one of these scientists and uh, public health experts who supports this ban. And uh, he is uh, being interviewed here uh, by a critical journalist, asked some very tough questions. So check out and hear what he has to say in terms of justifying halting the research on the blue bird flu virus. Well, there was a legitimate uh, scientific question that needed to be asked about whether or not this virus, which has been smoldering, in Southeast Asia for years, uh, can it actually attain the characteristics of easy spread while maintaining its virulence or its ability to kill? So it was a legitimate public health question to help people who are in the field doing surveillance to try and find out whether or not this will happen. The results of the experiment came up with a virus that at least in an animal model had these characteristics. But when you analyze the results, the decision was made to give the recommendation to publish the conclusions, but to not make the information available to anyone and everyone who wants it, as is traditional in the scientific literature, but to make it available for those people, those scientists and those public health officials who have a need to know for the public health good. But uh, can you understand, uh, Dr. Fauci, that by not... Uh publishing the full details of this uh, report, this appears to be censorship of important scientific findings. No, there's a delicate balance that the people who would have a need to know legitimate scientists, legitimate universities and medical centers, public health officials will definitely have access to these data. The, uh, the, it was an impartial National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity that made these recommendations. So it isn't as if the, the uh, information, the details will not be available to anyone. It will be available to the people who have a need to know, such as the health officials in the countries in which this disease is endemic. But don't you think, Dr. Fauci, that apart from this information only being made available to certain groups, it should also be made available to the public for, for, for us uh, to have the right to know about the, um, the consequences of uh, the bird flu disease? No, the, what, what you have, what, what certainly the public has a right to know that, in fact, this virus can attain the characteristics of spreading rapidly and being able to have a high degree of virulence. That fact will be published, but not every single person needs to know how to make a lethal virus. I don't think the general public, particularly if some of them might have nefarious reasons, should have a blueprint or a roadmap about how to make a lethal virus. What the public health officials who need to know and want to do continued research for the public good, they will have access to that information. All right, my two cents on this issue. After some thinking about it, I think it's probably a good idea that they've just stopped for now. Because what they, they, they actually now is the time they got to get to work and create an accountable and effective regulatory regime. They need to put this into place so that this important research can continue. So that you can have responsible scientists working on this. It doesn't make sense at this point to make this information public. Like the experts said, uh, this information isn't required for every Tom, Dick, and Harry. 
the only people who should have access to it are those who are work, going to work in sanctioned or licensed labs and under the, un, and under the very careful and watchful eye of this, this, uh, this regulatory regime that they need to set up. So I'm actually very encouraged by, by where this has turned because I, I when I first heard the news uh, that they had stopped this or even when this news first emerged that the, uh, this was being done in the Netherlands, I thought that they were just going to that the reaction was going to be to ban this kind of work outright and and not you know not ever deal with it ever again, and uh, that gets into the kind of my second point is now that we know how easy it is to mutate this virus into something far worse and like I mentioned all it took was two very particular genetic tweaks, is we have to operate under the assumption that the virus it will either mutate that way on its own. Or that someone will eventually and deliberately recreate this deadly strain for nefarious purposes. So consequently, it's imperative that research be done now to term- determine how to best combat such a virus. And like I've said, hindsight, the, uh, the excuse of saying hindsight is 2020 after a pandemic happens, that's not going to be allowed on this one because we, we know today that the work needs to be done. So that's the latest on the bird flu. The next step to see is what they're actually going to do in terms of regulating and uh, licensing, or I'm, not, I'm sure I'm not sure it's licensing is the right word, but just that um, the regulating of these uh, of these labs and how they're going to watch them. All right, Thomas White, Thomas I White. I like this guy. I've not had chance. I've not had a chance to meet him, but I'm sure if we uh, we ever met, we'd have a lot in common and little to disagree on. He is the author of a book entitled In Defense of Dolphins, The New Moral Frontier. And he's penned what I consider to be a must-read article, particularly for those of you interested in animal personhood and animal rights. And uh, it appeared in ABC Environment. And White is arguing that there is now ample scientific evidence that capacities once thought to be unique to humans are shared by dolphins and whales. Quote, Like humans... Whales and dolphins are persons, and by persons, he means that they are self-aware beings with individual personalities and a rich inner life. White says that they've got the ability to think abstractly, feel deeply, and choose their actions. And In addition, their lives are characterized by close, long-term relationships with conspecifics in communities characterized by culture. In short, he says, whales and dolphins are a who, not a what. And he notes in the article that research and research labs that do work on marine mammals are starting to, basically, they're on the wane. And uh, pulling a quote from the article, more significantly, a small group of experts who met at the Helsinki Collegium for Advanced Studies in the spring of 2010 to evaluate the ethical implications of the scientific research on cetaceans concluded that the evidence merited issuing a declaration of rights for cetaceans, whales, and dolphins. This group included such prominent scientists as Laurie Marino and Hal Whitehead, and particularly important in this declaration was the recognition that whales and dolphins are persons who are, quote, beyond use. Treating them as property is indefensible, end quote. Now, frustratingly, despite this, despite the fact that um, research is being done less and less on whales and dolphins, they are still being used for entertainment purposes, particularly at, at marine parks. Again, a quote from Thomas White. It is, of course, no surprise that the managers, employees, and researchers affiliated with enterprises that make money using captive whales and dolphins do a poor job of being sensitive to the ethical implications of the progress of marine mammal science. These people are caught in a classic conflict of interest. On the one hand, they have a duty to protect the welfare of the cetaceans in their care. On the other hand, their jobs and careers depend on keeping the current business model intact for as long as they can. Predictably, when there is money on the line, people will not only rationalize all sorts of actions, they'll even believe their own rationalizations. As we saw with the 2008 economic meltdown, individuals running banks and financial institutions on Wall Street were so blinded by a desire to maximize profits that they not only ran their own companies into the ground, they put the economy of the entire planet at risk. When we humans are so ready to turn a blind eye to actions that will risk hurting ourselves for the sake of profit, it comes as no surprise that we will readily ignore the possibility of hurting other intelligent species. All of the organizations that use captive cetaceans say they are strongly committed to the welfare of the whales and dolphins under their care. 
Given the ethical challenges that have come from the progress of scientific research over the past 30 years, the question is whether these organizations will respond appropriately on their own, or whether they will increasingly become the targets of controversy and consumer boycotts. End quote. So despite the increasing evidence reaffirming our suspicion that whales and dolphins are persons, we're left with an interesting but troubling conundrum. If moving away from using captive whales and dolphins is both the right thing to do and more profitable than current practices, asks White, why isn't it happening? So I encourage you to read the entire article. You can catch the link uh, to it on my site, Ascension Developments. And while you're at it, please support the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies Rights of the Non-Human Persons Program, where we're looking out not just for whales and dolphins, but we're also looking out for the rights and the personhood, the establishment of personhood and human equivalent rights for the great apes and elephants as well. Okay, let's get into some issues as they pertain to health and life extension. Their big thing I'm really almost obsessed with these days is cognitive health and what we can do to ensure that our brains remain healthy, particularly uh, later in life. Now that I'm into my 40s, I'm becoming progressively aware of this. A study just last week, I think, showed that cognitive decline can start as early as 45. So I, I also believe, though, that it's never too early to start, um, you know, engaging in activities and practices that will stave off cognitive decline as much as possible. And there was a neat article uh, printed this week in the New York Times by Patricia Cohen on how education can keep the mind sharp, particularly during the Middle Ages and beyond. And as it turns out, one essential element of mental fitness has already been identified, Quote, education seems to be an elixir that can bring us a healthy body and mind throughout adulthood and even a longer life. And that was a quote from Margie E. Latchman, and she's a psychologist at Brandeis University, and she specializes in aging. For those in midlife and beyond, a college degree appears to slow the brain's aging processes by up to a decade. Amazing. So a college degree will give you an added 10 years of life. And uh, that adds a kind of new twist to the cost-benefit analysis of higher education. And for young students as well as those thinking about returning to school. So again, it's uh, this also benefit not just in your youth, but at any point in your life to kind of rekindle those parts of your brain that uh, require kind of more higher level learning capacities. Now, Dr. Lashman, uh, she's one of the principal investigators for what could be considered the Manhattan Project of Middle Age. And it's enormous. It's an enormous study titled Midlife in the United States or Midas. And it's a continuing an ex examination of Americans' physical and emotional health and habits, uh, and how it's gained momentum in the 1990s as the first wave of baby boomers were settling into their fifth decade and running up against their own biases against aging. So we've got over 7,000 people, and about they are ranging from 25 to 74 years old, and they were drafted to participate so that middle-agers could be compared with those younger and older. And with a new $21 million grant from the National Institute on Aging, the Midas team is beginning its third round of research this month. And what makes Midas particularly valuable is that researchers can track the same person over a long period, comparing the older self with the younger self to see which capacities are declining and which are improving. And this approach has opened a whole new uh, peephole into the middle-aged brain. Now, despite continuing emphasis on SAT-type testing, in recent decades, researchers have become much more aware of the range of abilities that constitute intellectual muscle. Take uh, the work done by Harvard psychologist Howard Gardner, and he called this version of his theory the multiple intelligences idea. And, it, and this was put forth in his seminal 1983 book, Frames of Mind. And what he's basically saying, the human mind is better thought of as a series of relatively separate faculties with only loose and non-predictable relations with one another than as a single all-purpose machine that performs steadily at a certain horsepower, independent of content and context. So many researchers now believe that human intelligence or brain power consists of dozens of assortive cognitive skills, which they commonly divide into two categories. One bunch falls under the heading fluid intelligence, the abilities that produce solutions not based on experience, like pattern recognition, working memory, and abstract thinking, the kind of intelligence based on IQ examinations, and these abilities, they tend to peak in uh, your 20s. Now, crystallized intelligence, by contrast, so you get fluid intelligence and now crystallized intelligence, that uh, generally refers to skills that are acquired through experience and education, like verbal ability, inductive reasoning, and judgment. 
And while fluid intelligence is often considered largely a product of genetics, crystallized intelligence is much more dependent on a bouquet of influences, including personality, motivation, opportunity, and culture. So there you have it. If you want to maintain your crystallized intelligence, go back to school. It might add as much as a decade to your cognitive life. Very cool. Now, other things you can do, as I talked about last week, fish oil. I'm all about the fish oil and the benefits of it, particularly on your cognitive health, particularly if you are over the age of 45. But now, also, we are finding that fish oil is good for you for a whole number of other reasons, particularly uh, the recommending that men over 50, it can reduce their risk of heart disease, which is the number one killer of men in that category. And this is, uh, this is um, according to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Now, fish oil can improve some of the other factors that lead to heart disease, such as high cholesterol. And it can also improve other issues that come with aging. So it's a, you want to talk about your, um, uh, you know, longevity medicine or uh, any kind of life extension in a pill. No such thing exists. That's all pushed by hucksters. But the closest thing I think that you can kind of come to something in terms of maybe part of a cocktail is take your fish oil. So it can also deal with things such as, um, vision problems and arthritis. Uh, so for example, uh, as I mentioned already, it's, um, uh, one of the best documented benefits of fish oil is reduction of factors that cause heart disease, such as high triglyceride levels and blood pressure. And the omega-3 fatty acids in fish oil and the eicosapentaic acid and, I can't even say this, doxohexanotic acid, better known as EPA and DHA, which is what I probably should have said, they decrease the risk of heart disease in several ways, including decreasing inflammation and clot formation in blood vessels, slightly lowering blood pressure, and decreasing triglyceride levels. So, so that's got, that's in, as it pertains to cardiovascular effects. So it also can help you with arthritis, and arthritis causes pain and disability that can have clearly a serious impact on people over the age of 50, and taking fish oil may help reduce the symptoms of some types of arthritis, particularly rheumatoid arthritis, by again reducing inflammation that causes the, the pain and the swelling. It's also recommended that you can take fish oil with aspirin and other inflammatory, anti-inflammatory drugs to increase the effectiveness of these drugs. And as noted, it can also in, impact on your vision. Taking fish oily daily can help relieve dry eye, which is a common complaint after the age of 50. Fish oil may also have benefits in treating macular degeneration and cataracts. And this is according to the All About Vision website. And two other eye conditions that commonly uh, increase over the age of 50 are, in fact, um, macular degeneration and cataracts. In a, in, a British, in a British study reported in the August 2008 issue of the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, eating oily fish once a week or more halved the risk of developing age-related macular degeneration compared with those who ate oily fish less than once per week. So again, obviously, if you can go right to the source and eat your fatty, oily fish like salmon, go for it. If uh, you can't uh, do that for whatever reason, pop those fish oil pills. Uh, 3,000 milligrams per day is typically what is prescribed. I, I take more than that. I am up to 6,000 per day, 3 in the morning and 3 later on in the evening. Now, it is time for a break. And it will be the last segment of the podcast for this week going to discuss the sex chip and personal stimulation and how that may not actually be such a good thing. Another case of be very careful what you wish for.
So scientists, they've taken us one step closer to achieving permanent bliss. And in particular, it was due and thanks to the work of the neuroscientists Morton Kringleback and Tipu Aziz, who back in 2008 announced that they were able to stimulate the pleasure centers of the brain by implanting a chip that sends tiny shocks to the orbitofrontal cortex. And this is the same area that is responsible for feelings of pleasure induced by such things as eating and sex. All right, now, before you go and put yourself on the waiting list for this device, you may want to consider the implications. Sure, on-demand erotic bliss sounds all fine and well, but such an add-on would come at a considerable price. As experiments and real-life situations have demonstrated, there are limits to how much pleasure both humans and other animals are able to experience before extreme compulsiveness sets in. Simply put, our current psychologies aren't really capable of handling it. So for this and other reasons, the advent of the so-called sex chip, or even the fabled orgasmatron, would introduce a slew of ethical problems. Governments will more than likely classify these sorts of technologies as drugs and work to restrict access. Let's take, let's face it, a completely blissed-out citizenry is hardly desirable in a corporatist system. Proponents will argue that it's an issue of cognitive liberty, though, and that people have a right to manipulate their own minds as they, say, as they see fit and work to reduce suffering in themselves and others. And yet others will contend that there's a hedonistic imperative in effect with profound existential and spiritual implications for the species as a whole. Suffice to say, this is going to be a very hotly contested topic in relatively short order. So, how do we make pleasure? Well, the ability to tweak the, blain, the brain's pleasure center, it's nothing new. Researchers James Olds and Peter Milner, they figured out a way to do this by accident back in 1954 when they were studying the brain's reticular formation. And during their experiments on mice, they discovered that electric shocks in the brain's septal area triggered the reward response. And these responses were so potent that, when given the choice, mice would rather starve themselves to death and give up the ability to flip their own reward switch. At its worst, the mice were obsessively flipping their switches at five-second intervals. In the following decades, neuroscientist Robert G. Heath began to experiment with larger mammals, including bulls and humans. He developed a device comprised of electrodes and an implant tube called a cannula, which could deliver precise doses of chemicals into the brain. And specifically, he injected acetylcholine into a patient's septal area, which caused vigorous activity to show up on the EEG. Patients undergoing this experiment described intense pleasure, including multiple orgasms lasting as long as 30 minutes. In 1972, Heath attempted to quote-unquote cure a 24-year-old man's homosexuality by using the technique to reprogram his sexual orientation through reconditioning. During a three-hour span, the man, infamously known as Subject B-19, stimulated himself nearly 1,500 times. Again, that was within a three-hour span. And it induced feelings of almost overwhelming euphoria and elation. At the end of the experiment, B-19 had to be forcefully disconnected from the device. And it's worth noting that the experiment did not alter B-19's sexual orientation after disconnection. Now, more recently, as part of some early work on deep brain stimulation, also known as DBS, in 1986, a 48-year-old woman with a stimulating electrode implanted in her right central thalamus, she started to compulsively self-stimulate after discovering that it could produce erotic sensations. The NVPL electrode, it was meant to treat her chronic pain, but the stimulation also produced sexual sensations. The woman, who had control over the bursts, eventually developed a, se a severe addiction to the stimulator. It got so bad, actually, that she began to self-stimulate herself throughout the day and to the point where she began to neglect personal hygiene and family commitments. The patient even developed a chronic ulceration at the tip of her finger that she used to adjust the amplitude. And interestingly, the patient frequently tampered with the device in an effort to increase the stimulation. The patient eventually asked for limited access to the device, only to eventually demand that it be returned to her. Over the course of two years, the stimulator caused compulsive use that became associated with frequent attacks of anxiety, depersonalization, periods of psychogenic polydipsia, and complete inactivity. A smaller case was recorded in 2005 when a Parkinson's patient developed an addiction to a DBS electrode that produced a morphine-like sensation. 
So is this too much of a good thing? Well, there's no doubt in my mind that an implantable sex chip would result in a slew of these pathologies. Our capacity for pleasure in the natural state has been carefully calibrated by the forces of natural selection. Feelings of sexual stimulation only needed to be good enough to encourage reproduction, but not so good that an animal would be obsessed to the point of self-neglect. Nature did not prepare our psychologies for these extreme out-of-bounds sensations. Pleasure-inducing technological devices threaten to overturn our delicate psychological balance. We already know how drugs mess with the limits of human restraint, and it's often the psychological dependence caused by these stimulants that's very difficult to overcome. Once a person feels the extremes of pleasure, it's very difficult to come, to come back down, and even more so when they have control over the inducement of the pleasure. So, should these devices be banned? Well, yes and no. Like the current prohibition on both soft and hard drugs, there's a certain efficacy to a patriarchal imperative that works to protect citizens from themselves. Sex chip junkies wouldn't be unlike other kinds of junkies. Highly addicted and dysfunctional persons would find themselves outside the social contract and completely dependent on the state. But what about the pursuit of happiness and other freedoms? And what about our cognitive liberties? Now, a strong case can be made that we, have all a we all have a vested interest in the quality of our own minds and the nature of our subjective experiences. Ensuring access to these sorts of technologies may prove to be a very important part of the struggle for psychological autonomy. The issue also brings to mind the hedonistic imperative. And there's more to this debate than the immediate needs of our materialist condition and our Puritan predispositions. This is an issue with deep existential and spiritual implications. In a hostile universe with no meaning other than that which we ascribe to it, who's to say that entering into a permanent state of bliss is somehow wrong or immoral? It could be said that maximizing the human capacity for pleasure is as valid as any, any other purpose of any other. But as demonstrated above, as I demonstrated earlier, the self-stimulation has its pitfalls. It's not easy to come back to a regular baseline after experiencing prolonged periods of bliss. And as a result, I see the bliss-out option as something that makes more sense for persons in their later years. In fact, given the potential for radically extended lifespans, this may be a very reasonable option outside of voluntary death. Once a person has decided that they've had enough of the crazy game that is life, they should be able to opt into a state of permanent bliss. And the same can be said for those suffering from chronic pain or illness. So rather, let's say, let's say in a world where the radical life extension exists and longevity uh, extends as outward as is possible, and, let's say, and then let's say you're done with life in terms of engaging in, in, like I said, the craziness that is life. Rather than committing suicide, you could kind of plug in to this kind of a device and live out the rest of um, the length of the time of the universe in a completely blissed out state. So, but by doing so, a person would eventually, eventually disengage from an active and purposeful life. And not only that, given a powerful enough pleasure device, persons would effectively cease to be persons, replaced instead by purely, sorry, by purely experiential agents. And in a way, it would be like a kind of death. In the meantime, uh, we need to be careful about what we wish for and take this talk about a sex chip with a grain of salt. Sure, it makes for titillating headlines, but it's probably not something most of us need in our lives at this exact moment. All right. I think that's it for this week's episode. Lots covered there. And uh, happy to get on some of these topics. They've been kind of sitting here for a while, including the gender selection. I wanted to address that for a while. So thank you once again for joining me here at Sentient Developments. Again, I'm George Dvorsky, and uh, this was the podcast of my blog, Sentient Developments. Please join me again in about a week's time where I do it all over again. And uh, until then, have yourselves a great week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Sension Developments. Goodbye.